Chapter 9 of Katrina by Robert Louis Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Wayne Cook. Chapter 9 The Heather on Fire. When I left Preston Grange that afternoon, I was for the first time angry. The advocate had made a mock of me. He had pretended my testimony was to be received and myself respected. And in that very hour, not only was Simon practicing against my life by the hands of the Highland soldier, but, as appeared from his own language, Preston Grange himself had some design in operation. I counted my enemies. Preston Grange, with all the king's authority behind him, and the duke, with the power of the West Highlands, and the levet interests by their side to help them with so great a force in the north and the whole clan of old Jacobite spies and traffickers. And when I remembered James Moore and the redhead of Neil, the son of Duncan, I thought there was perhaps a fourth in the Confederacy. And what remained of Rob Roy's old desperate sept of Catterns would be banded against me with the others. One thing was requisite, some strong friend or wise adviser. The country must be full of such, both able and eager to support me, or Levitt and the Duke and Preston Grange had not been nosing for expedience. And it made me raise to think that I might brush against my champions in the street and be no wiser. And just then, like an answer, a gentleman brushed against me going by, gave me a meaning look, and turned into a close. I knew him with the tail of my eye. It was Stuart the writer, and, blessing my good fortune, turned in to follow him. As soon as I had entered the close, I saw him standing in the mouth of a stair, where he made a signal and immediately vanished. Seven stories up, there he was again in a house door, the which he looked behind us after we had entered. The house was quite dismantled with not a stick of furniture. Indeed, it was one of which Stuart had the letting in his hands. "'We'll have to sit upon the floor,' said he. "'But we're safe here for the time being, and I've been wearying to see you, Mr. Balfour.' "'How's it with Alan?' I asked. "'Brawley,' said he. "'And he picks him up at the Gilline Sands tomorrow, Wednesday. He was keen to say good-bye to ye, but the way that things were going I was feared the pair of ye was maybe best apart. And that brings me to the essential. How does your business speed? Why, said I, I was told only this morning that my testimony was accepted, and that I was to travel to Inverary with the advocate no less. Hutawa, cried Stuart, I'll never believe that. I have maybe a suspicion of my own, says I but I would like fine to hear your reasons. Well, I tell you fairly, I'm horn-mad, cries Stuart. If my one hand could pull their government down, I would pluck it like a rotten apple. I'm doer for Appen and for James of the Glens, and, of course, it's my duty to defend my kinsman for his life. Hear how it goes with me, and I'll leave the judgment of it to yourself. The first thing they have to do is to get rid of Alan. They can bring in James as art and part, 
until they've brought in Allen first as principal. That's sound law. They could never put the cart before the horse. And how are they to bring in Allen till they can catch him? says I. Ah, but there is a way to evite that arrestment, said he. Sound law, too. It would be a bonny thing if, by the escape of one ill-doer, another was to go scatheless, and the remedy is to summon the principal and put him to outlawry for the non-comparence. Now, there's four places where a person can be summoned. At his dwelling-house, at a place where he has resided forty days, at the headburg of the shire where he ordinarily resorts, or, lastly, if there be ground to think him forth of Scotland, at the cross of Edinburgh and the pier and shore of Leith for sixty days, the purpose of which last provision is evident upon its face, being that outgoing ships may have time to carry news of the transaction and the summonsing to be something other than a form. Now, take the case of Allen. He has no dwelling-house that ever I could hear of. I would be obliged if any one would show me where he has lived for forty days together since the forty-five. There is no shire where he resorts, whether ordinarily or extraordinarily. If he has a domicile at all, which I misdoubt, it must be with his regiment in France. And if he is not yet forth of Scotland, as we happen to know, and they happen to guess, it must be evident to the most dull it's what he's aiming for. Where, then, and what way should he be summoned? I ask it at yourself, a layman. You have given me the very words, said I, here at the cross and at the pier and shore of Leith for sixty days. You're a sounder Scots lawyer than Preston Grange, then, cries the writer. He has had Alan summoned once. That was on the twenty-fifth, the day that we first met. Once, and done with it. And where? Where but the cross at Inverary, the head burg of the Campbells? A word in your ear, Mr. Balfour. They're not seeking Alan. What do you mean, I cried, not seeking him? By the best I can make of it, said he, not wanting to find him in my poor thought. They think that perhaps he might set up a fair defense, upon the back of which James, the man they're really after, might climb out. This is not a case, you see. It's a conspiracy. Yet I can tell you Preston Grange asked after Alan Keenly, said I, though when I come to think of it, he was something of the easiest put by. See that, says he. But there. I may be right or wrong, that's guesswork at the best. Now let me get to my facts again. It comes to my ears that James and the witnesses, the witnesses, Mr. Balfour, lay in close dungeons and shackled forby in the military prison at Fort William, none allowed in to them, nor they to write. The witnesses, Mr. Balfour, Heard ye ever the match of that? I assure ye, no old crooked steward of the gang ever outfaced the law more impudently. It's clean in the two eyes of the Act of Parliament of 1700, and it wrong us imprisonment. 
No sooner did I get the news than I petitioned the Lord Justice Clerk. I have his word today. There's law for ye. Here's justice. He put a paper in my hand, that same mealy-mouthed, false-faced paper that was printed since the pamphlet by a bystander, for behoof, as the title says, of James's poor widow and five children. See, said Stuart, he couldn't dare to refuse me access to my client, so he recommends the commanding officer to let me in. Recommends. The Lord Justice Clerk of Scotland recommends. Is not the purpose of such language plain? They hope the officer may be so dull, or so very much the reverse, as to refuse the recommendation. I would have to make the journey back again twixt here and Fort William, then would follow a fresh delay till I got fresh authority, and they had disavowed the officer, military man, notoriously ignorant of the law and that, I can the cant of it, then the journey a third time, and there we should be on the immediate heels of the trial before I had received my first instruction. Am I not right? to call this a conspiracy? It will bear that color, said I. And I'll go on to prove it you outright, said he. They have the right to hold James in prison, yet they cannot deny me to visit him. They have no right to hold the witnesses, but am I to get a sight of them that should be as free as the Lord Justice Clerk himself? See, read. For the rest refuses to give any orders to keepers of prisons who are not accused as having done anything contrary to the duties of their office. Anything contrary, sirs, and the act of 1700? Mr. Balfour, this makes my heart to burst. The heather is on fire inside my wame. And the plain English of that phrase, said I, is that the witnesses are still to lie in prison? and you are not to see them? And I am not to see them until Inverary, when the court is set, cries he, and then to hear Preston Grange upon the anxious responsibilities of his office and the great facilities afforded the defense. But I'll begot them there, Mr. David. I have a plan to waylay the witnesses upon the road, and see if I can get I a little harley of justice out of the military man notoriously ignorant of the law that shall command the party. It was actually so. It was actually on the wayside near Tyndrum, and by the convenience of a soldier officer, that Mr. Stewart first saw the witnesses upon the case. There is nothing that would surprise me in this business, I remarked. I'll surprise ye ere I'm done, cries he. Do you see this? Producing a print still wet from the press. This is the libel. See, there's Preston Grange's name to the list of witnesses, and I find no word of any Balfour. But here is not the question. Who do ye think paid for the printing of this paper? I suppose it would likely be King George, said I. But it happens it was me, he cried. Not but it was printed by and for themselves, 
for the Grants and the Erskines and yon thief of the black midnight, Simon Fraser. But could I win to get a copy? No. I was to go blindfold to my defense. I was to hear the charges for the first time in court alongst the jury. Is this not against the law? I asked. I cannot say so much, he replied. It was a favor so natural and so constantly rendered till this nonsense business that the law has never looked to it and now admire the hand of providence. A stranger is in Fleming's printing house, spies a proof on the floor, picks it up, and carries it to me. Of all things, it was just this libel, whereupon I had it set again, printed at the expense of the defense, subtibus misti rei, heard ever man the like of it, and here it is for anybody, the muckle secret out. All may see it now. But how do you think I would enjoy this, that this has the life of my kinsman on my conscience? Troth, I think you would enjoy it ill, said I. And now you see how it is, he concluded and why, when you tell me your evidence is to be let in, I laugh aloud in your face. It was now my turn. I laid before him in brief Mr. Simon's threats and offers, and the whole incident of the Bravo, with the subsequent scene at Preston Grange's. Of my first talk, according to promise, I said nothing, nor indeed was it necessary. All the time I was talking, Stuart nodded his head like a mechanical figure, and no sooner had my voice ceased than he opened his mouth and gave me his opinion in two words, dwelling strong on both of them. "'Disappear yourself,' said he. "'I do not take you,' said I. "'Then I'll carry you there,' said he. "'By my view of it, you're to disappear whatever. Oh, that's outside debate.' The advocate, who is not without some spunks of a remainder decency, has wrung your life safe out of Simon and the Duke. He has refused to put you on your trial, and refused to have you killed, and there is the clue to their ill words together, for Simon and the Duke can keep faith with neither friend nor enemy. You're not to be tried then, and you're not to be murdered. But I'm in bitter error if you're not to be kidnapped and carried away like the Lady Grange. Bet me what ye please. There was their expedient. You make me think, said I, and told him of the whistle and the red-headed retainer, Neil. Wherever James Moore is, there's one big rogue. Never be deceived on that, said he. His father was none so ill a man, though a kinning on the wrong side of the law, and no friend to my family, that I should waste my breath to be defending him. But as for James, he's a brock and a blaggard. I like the appearance of this red-headed Neil as little as yourself. It looks uncanny, fay, it smells bad. It was old Levitt that managed the Lady Grange affair. If young Levitt is to handle yours, it'll be all in the family." What's James Moore in prison for? The same offense, abduction. His men have had practice in the business. He'll lend them to be Simon's instruments, 
and the next thing we'll be hearing, James will have made his peace, or else he'll have escaped, and you'll be in Benbecula or Applecross. Ye make a strong case, I admitted. And what I want, he resumed, is that you should disappear yourself ere they can get their hands upon ye. Lie quiet until just before the trial, and spring upon them at the last of it when they'll be looking for you least. This is always supposing, Mr. Balfour, that your evidence is worth so very great a measure of both risk and fash. I will tell you one thing, said I. I saw the murderer, and it was not Alan. Then, by God, my cousin saved, cried Stuart. You have his life upon your tongue, and there's neither time, risk, nor money to be spared to bring you to the trial. He emptied his pockets on the floor. Here is all that I have by me, he went on. Take it. You'll want it ere you're through. Go straight down this close. There's a way out by there to the Lang Dykes, and by my will of it. See no more of Edinburgh till the clash is over. Where am I to go, then? I inquired. And I wish that I could tell ye, says he. But all the places that I could send ye to would be just the places they would seek. No, ye must fend for yourself, and God be your guiding. Five days before the trial, September the 16th, get word to me at the King's Arms in Stirling, and if you've managed for yourself as long as that, I'll see that ye reach Inverary. One thing more, said I, can I no see Alan? He seemed boggle. Ach, I would rather you winna, said he, but I can never deny that Alan is extremely keen of it, and is to lie this night by silver mills on purpose. If you're sure that you're not followed, Mr. Balfour, but make sure of that, lie in a good place and watch your road for a clear hour before you risk it. It would be dreadful business if both you and him was to miscarry. End of chapter 9